Well, good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture for today's message. It's found in the book of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 45. In your um, Bible in the pew, it's page 836. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving the wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed of his word and th they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at this time, we're going to dismiss any children four through kindergarten that are here. There might not be too many. My son, is, who usually runs out, is not here this weekend. <laughs> um, visiting family. The author of the book of John tells us his purpose for the book. These stories are written, he tells us, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John wrote what he wrote so that we would become mature believers in Jesus and that in believing we would find life. That's his word, life. The truest, fullest, deepest kind of life that is truly life. That, that's his purpose. Sometimes though, you might feel that the life that Jesus wants to give you doesn't feel like the kind of life you want to have. That's how the 12, to 12 followers of Jesus felt in this story about a woman at a well. But then something changed. 
I want to pray here one more time, and we're going to hear about what, what changed for them, and what I would say must also change for us. So would you pray with me one more time? I think of the metaphor that Scott just used in his prayer, that of excavation, of, of going deep into our hearts and, and unearthing and taking out that which should not be there. But there is another work too, of you pouring yourself back in. Lord, we pray that as we study this passage and your heart for the world, that you would make us the kind of Christians you desire us to be. And in doing so, we would experience life in the fullest sense. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I told our staff and our team that debriefs the sermon each week something about this sermon. The, the, the upcoming sermon. And I told them I didn't want to make this passage merely about our church. That is, about our church in one very specific way. I, I told them I did not want to take this iconic story of the woman at the well and all of its glory and grandeur and God-exalting purpose and, and, and reduce the sum force of the passage down to the fact that on Sunday mornings, we need more people to volunteer in the nursery. I said I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to make it about volunteering in toddler rooms. I, but I will say it's been on my mind a lot. Yet I don't want to presume that numbers and attendance and <laughs> signing up for nursery duty is on your minds as much as it's on my mind. But humor me for a moment. You will. Each week, children's ministry has opportunities for about 30 people to share the love of Jesus with others who need support and care and to do it in an environment that's relatively safe and often quite fun. That same sentence, I know, could be worded other ways. <laughs> I could have worded it that we need a bunch of people to pull nursery duty and hold babies that might cry in their arms and spit on their shirt. <laughs> like, there's other ways to say it, I understand. Uh, that's also true. But since we're talking about numbers, I'll just say we have each week about six people serving on the worship team, the music team. We have three people, at least in first service, and then two in the other services running the audiovisual system. Five or more people leading English as second language classes. Several adults teaching the adult classes and youth classes. One person drives vans to go pick people up and bring them back to church. Across the three services we have, on a good Sunday, dozens of volunteers greeting. We have a few people making coffee and snacks few people counting the offering and one person doing security. Three people read the sermon passage each Sunday. We have one person doing the pastoral prayer each service. And if you get a count, the preacher, then that's one more person. And in total, that means that our church has each week 78 opportunities to serve. 
which, if you multiply that out over a month, becomes 312 opportunities to serve. With 120 of those being in children's ministry. And since we're talking about numbers, you may be wondering about attendance. We have about 200 members and about 300 who attend each week. And about, across the whole month, probably 450 people who come to one service. So in summary, 300 openings to serve and 400 people or so to come each month. So thank you for humoring me. (laughs) I was once an engineer and I did open up Microsoft Excel this week and made a very pretty chart with all of those numbers that it added up in real time. It's wonderful. But as I said, I'm, I'm unwilling to make the sum total of this iconic passage about the woman at the well, all of its glory, all of its grandeur, all of its God exalting purposes, and reduce it to the fact that on Sunday morning we need more people in the toddler rooms. I, I don't want to do that, but neither, neither do I think they're totally unrelated. How do you think I would feel if in, in, in a moment, We had found gifted, trained, mature believers for all of those areas to serve. That'd be great, right? Like, just solved. But what if most of them were pulled from other good churches? Like Brookfield Bible and Pastor John Shirey, just just five-minute walk from here, doing great ministry over there at their church. Uh, how, how, How would we feel, how would I feel, if our church got blessed but at the expense of others. I mean, I, I feel like we should feel these roles, especially when we're now T-minus something like 17 months away from planning another church in the city, which, Lord willing, dozens of you will go to. And speaking of the church plant, how, how will we measure the success of that church plant? What if in, say, five years from now, 120 people are volunteering in the ministry, children's ministry, of that new church? Would that be a success? Perhaps. How did they get there? Were they drawn from other churches? And now those churches struggle at our expense of our success. Now, some pastors might say, if not publicly, but privately, who cares about those other churches? Well, Jesus cares, and we care. Or at least I should say that when I'm thinking rightly about Jesus, when I'm thinking maturely about Jesus and his church and the kingdom of God, I care not only about the health of our church, but the health of all churches. And when I'm thinking maturely, that's that's what I'm thinking about. But I'm not always thinking maturely. And neither are you. Neither, to come back to our passage, were the disciples. Sinful, immature hearts often want God's blessing to come for us and those we love, but with little vision for the rest. To use the words from our passage, Jesus is Savior of the world, not merely of our church or of a certain people. If you were here last week, we looked at the first part of John 4. We read that Jesus, quote, had to travel through, not around, a region of, a region that pious Jews hated to visit. They hated the people from Samaria because 
Samaria, many years before, had participated in a civil war that had torn the part the country in two, and they had established their own place of worship, i.e., idolatry, and they were faithless to the Lord. And then now here comes Jesus through this hated region, a region many Jews would have chosen to prefer or preferred to avoid, and he sits with a woman from a hated people at the hottest part of the day, and he gives her what he calls living water. And he tells her that he's the long-awaited Messiah. And if you were to glance down at verse 28, which begins sort of our passage in verse 27, but in verse 28, it says that she's so excited about this Messiah news that she leaves her water jar there and she goes into town and tells everyone she can meet, could this be the one? Even though she's been what we would call a disciple, a a follower of Jesus for like five minutes, she's already mature enough to know that she needs to share Jesus with everyone she can. That's not, however, the first impulse of the actual 12 disciples. And that's actually how I want to frame our study of this passage. God wants us to see a whole bunch of things, but at least these two. First, the immature reflections of disciples, and then later the mature reflections of a disciple. So right here on the page, we can, we can see their immature reflections of these 12 disciples. That, that's, that's what I mean by immature reaction. I, I, I mean, I want to talk about how, like right here on the page, these followers of Jesus, how, how they experience this event in real time. And it's not so great. They want ministry to be tidy, not, not messy. I'm just going to read a smattering here of verses. This is two or so to speak, from last week's passage, and then verse 27. So verses 3 and 4, 7 and through 9, and then 27. So 3 to 4 says, He, that's Jesus, they left Judea and departed again for Galilee. That's north. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Going to verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, parentheses, verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now parentheses, in case you didn't know, John adds, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Then we come down to verse 27. Start of our passage. Just then, they have this long conversation, Jesus and the woman, this long conversation, verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said to her, what do you seek? Or to him, why are you talking to her? Like, that's what the text says. Like, that's the experience of these disciples. Can you tell how they feel? What, are we going through Samaria? And stopping here? Well, fine, we'll go into town, we'll get food. Now wait, what, what, you're talking to a woman from here? My family and I lived in a very large city for the first six years of our marriage, and most of our friends and co-workers felt we lived in a very, very, very bad part of the city. And they told us that over and over again, over the six years we were there, and 
For example, the elementary school just down the road that we'd walk by all the time was unaccredited. And our area had lots of other aspects of what we would call big city problems. And we tended to like living there, honestly. We, we, we really enjoyed it. We, we loved it, I would say. Which is all the way to say I was, I was used to living in rougher parts of cities. However, however... I remember a trip we went to visit extended family. And what turned out to be a very poor choice for a gas station in the south part of another even larger city. And, and you could hate me for saying this, and you can think ill of me, that's okay. But I'm being honest with you here. The, I thought to myself, when I was looking at the bulletproof glass, I just thought, we gotta go, and we gotta go now. That, 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 that's what I felt dad rising up in me there. Sin, part, partly maybe helpful and dad and protective, partly sinful. You've probably felt that way in different situations before. Maybe you've even been to a church service and you thought, I've got to go now. This is really uncomfortable to me. I think this is something of how the disciples felt in Samaria. And this is interesting because the disciples, disciples often boast of their desire to go anywhere and do anything and be with Jesus. In another place in the Gospels, Peter once told Jesus that he was willing to be with Jesus even if it meant death, Matthew 26, 35. In another place, several disciples, they're implying that they're willing to drink the cup that Jesus, the cup of suffering that Jesus is willing to drink, and Jesus says, you're not. And in each case, the disciples, they don't really mean what they say. You see that here as well. Immature disciples, they, they, they want to follow Jesus only so long as it doesn't involve going through Samaria. You could probably relate. Sure, some of you want to follow Jesus and have life in him, but, but, but we want to have life on our terms. Ministry that's clean, tidy. You can also see their immaturity and their large, exorbitant, we might say, focus on their own comfort. Jesus is willing to sacrifice his own food and eating so that he can do ministry to a woman desperately thirsty for living water. That's his heart. And speaking of spiritual living water, you can also see their immaturity in the way they confuse spiritual metaphors. All they can understand is, is someone drawing strength from their own resources. Look with me at verse 31, 32, 33, 34. So back and forth here with the disciples. Meanwhile, we read, the disciples were urging him, that's Jesus, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my will is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. They all needed food, so they say, all right, we'll, we'll go into town, we'll buy some. And even though they'd rather not be there in town, and when they bring food to Jesus, and they see that he's already eaten whatever that means, by which Jesus means to do the Father's will, his food was meeting the spiritual needs of others. And this, to be frank, annoyed the disciples. Why do we go all the way to town if someone's just going to give him a sandwich? 
in their immaturity. They, they, they don't understand the spiritual metaphor. They're, they're, they're just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, who can't understand what Jesus means about being born again. You must be born again. And Jesus, Nicodemus is like, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? How would I do that? Like, what, what are you talking about? And this woman at the well, at least at first, she's like, okay, just give me this water drink so I don't have to come here. And she's not understanding. No, Jesus is talking about giving something, giving resources to follow God that people don't have in their in and of themselves. Immature followers of Jesus, they, they, they draw strength primarily from their own resources. And that leaves us tired. Maybe that's the reason you're tired right now. Yes, you have so many challenges around you, and yes, the challenges are big. And, but have you considered, I want to be careful here, because not all challenges are the same, and God's not always doing the same thing in every circumstances. But I would ask the question, maybe... See, I think I flipped two pages, sorry. <laughs> um, maybe what God is doing is giving you an invitation in all the chaos that's around you to eat food that you don't know about, to find life that you don't know about. By God's grace and by the patience of God and by the saving work of Jesus Christ, these disciples do not stay immature disciples. How do we, how do we know that, though? How, how do we know that they change? Well, what I would say is that just as their immaturity is on the page, so is their maturity. Let me explain. The disciples don't look so great here in the story, do they? They come across, well, in the words I've been using, immature. When we read about this sinful Samaritan woman, all of those words would have been like nails on the chalkboard to these men, sinful Samaritan and woman. And yet, she's more mature than they are in Christ. And these people from the town, they see more of who Jesus is truly is, than these disciples do. The disciples, in their immaturity, see Jesus as their Jesus, by which they meant the leader of their tribe and their people. He was their mascot. Their hearts want God's blessing, but they just want Him for them. And the people they know, forget about how much that hurts other churches, especially those on the other side of the street in Samaria. And yet all of that changed. How do we know? It's on the page. Think about it. How do we have this story? The men who first experienced the story of the woman at the well were not the same men who would have written the actual event of the story of the woman at the well. At least they were not those men yet. John, the author, lived with Jesus for three years, seeing the way he served and loved, seeing him live and die and rise again. And he saw the birth of the early church, which at first was centered around Jewish people, but then quickly expanded out and out and out through messy ministry from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1-8. 
What I'm trying to say is that the disciples who wrote the story of their own immaturity must have become mature in Christ. The man who wrote the story must have really been changed by the Messiah, or he wouldn't have written it this way. Instead of following Jesus in a way that was clean and tidy, a mature disciple is up for messy ministry. Instead of focusing on his comfort or her comfort and well-being and what he wants or what she wants, there's a focus upon Jesus. In verse 36, we read Jesus tell the disciples, quote, I sent you to reap that which you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. They're going to enter into that kind of labor. They didn't know what it would mean or where it would take them, but now, writing from the vantage point of probably 50 years later, they do. In fact, John, the author, will spend the end of his life exiled on a small prison island for the sake of Jesus. And you get the sense that this spiritual metaphor that confused them, the one about food and viewed as doing the will of the Father, you get the sense that at the end of John's life, his testimony is that he was carried along by God's strength, not his own. You get the sense that mature disciples no longer believe that Jesus was just for them, but that he is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Jesus is not a tribal deity, meaning merely blessing one group of people. He's the Savior of the world. That, that, that's an important line from the story, if not the most important line from the story. Look with me at 39, 40, 41, and 42. Many Samaritans, verse 39, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Her mature in her immaturity testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them, stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, mark this, What's their te- what, what, what is it that they know? And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you had asked an immature disciple who Jesus was, they might have said he's the savior of Israel. But here, after two, just two days with Jesus, these sinful nobodies from a hated region see Jesus for who he really is, savior of the world. And years later, the mature disciple who wrote it that way He he crafted the story with that as the climactic moment of the story because he knew that it was true. Not caring how bad it made him look because he knew it made Jesus look better. Maybe you're here and and, and you don't know Jesus all that well. But you you read a passage like this and you you hear about his love and his compassion and, and the way he loves these people from this town and, and sort of like them, you, you'd like to get to know Jesus better. All you have to do is ask. Behold the patience of Jesus with people. 
I mean, he's, he's traveling up north. He's going to get to Galilee. And these Samaritans merely ask him to stay. And he's like, I'll stay two days. He talks with them. We, we don't have all of the details from this visit. But if this visit were like many of the other visits we read about in the Gospels, he likely healed their sicknesses. Maybe healed their marriages. And he told them about sin and salvation. Maybe if you spent some more time with Jesus, you'd conclude that he too is the savior of the world. But you need to ask Jesus to show himself to you. He, he would love to do that. That's why he came. Years ago, another pastor at our church here named Jason, uh, he and I, we, we probably wanted ministry he was here for, we, I think we overlapped about five, six years. He's been gone about three now. He left to another church, and that went well. It was all behind us. But, but, but when Jason and I were here, we were friends. We knew each other well from the past, and it was a joy to pastor with him in so many ways. But, but when Jason and I would talk about ministry, uh, we, 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 we probably wanted ministry to be more tidy than we realized. Now, that's not what we said in sermons and in leader meetings. We'd use the language of what we called messy ministry. It was a phrase that we, I don't know if Jason coined it himself. I mean, he coined that phrase. It's, it's pretty generic, but messy ministry. And we, we, say it this way. We, we wanted to be pastors who led a church into messy situations where Jesus would shine. Sounds great, doesn't it? Except what we probably really meant was that we wanted to do ministry among upper, upper middle class people who look like us. It's just that we, you know, maybe they'd be more secular or progressive than we are, less conservative. In other words, we, we, we wanted to do ministry. I won't put words in Jason's mouth. I'll, I'll, I'll just say, frame this as how probably I understood it at the time. It, it, okay, we want to do this kind of ministry to these progressive people on social justice issues and all those sorts of things. Like, and that's going to be messy to our church. But for, for us, like, it, it, it wasn't that hard. We were comfortable talking about the Bible in those sorts of situations. It, it wouldn't have stretched us. But as the years went on, we, Jason and I would often joke with each other, as well as a few of the other pastor elders, that we really actually got messy ministry. <laughs> we had people come over the next few years who challenged us in ways we never expected, we had one member years ago go to jail for doing awful things. We got messy ministry. And I'm not sure we wanted it <laughs> then. Maybe you can relate. Sure, you want to follow Jesus and have life in him, but we want to have it on our terms. And yet, I close by coming back to the purpose statement of the book. John tells us, chapter 20, verse 31, these stories are written, he tells us, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John wrote what he wrote so that we would believe certain truths about Jesus, so that we would become mature believers of Jesus, and that in believing we would find life. The truest, fullest, deepest kind of life. The, the life that is truly life. 
That's John's purpose for you. The life that begins now and goes on forever. And maybe that also involves serving in the nursery. I don't know. But it might involve some kind of messy ministry or another. It's good news that if Jesus is the Savior of the world, not only can he deal with the mess that's out there, he can deal with the mess that's in here, in our hearts and in our church. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team up for one more song? Heavenly Father, Sometimes I, I find myself putting myself in the, these disciples' shoes and sort of cringing for them. I, I, I look at what they, they do and what they say and, and then I think so often about what I do and say and to use the words of Romans, how far we fall short of your glory. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your gospel that is not just good news for the past, but for our present and our future. Thank you for your ability to change people. Would you please change us and keep changing us more and more into your image? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.